Welcome to the Zeal Interestings Podcast. I'm your host, Chris White. My special guest today is Adam Wathen. He's the host of Full Stack Radio, the creator of Nitpick CI, the co-founder of Refactor UI, and the creator of Tailwind CSS. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks for having me, man. I'm glad to be here. So super glad to have you. Super excited to ask you about all the things you're doing. And I thought we'd just jump right into it. What do you actually do? What do you consider like your main focus right now? Sure. So this is actually something I was thinking about a little bit uh, recently, trying to sort of like figure out what is my you know mission statement, I guess, that kind of defines all the different things that I do. And yeah, so I used to work for a few different web agencies as just a full-time web developer and then eventually left to kind of do my own thing, creating uh, training products and stuff like that. So I like to think of what I do as just like trying to help other developers uh, make awesome stuff easier and, you know, in a more enjoyable way. Um, so that usually, you know, that involves doing things like teaching. So I've put out a, a book and a couple video courses on different topics from, you know, refactoring backend PHP stuff to test-driven development to most recently a course on uh, advanced view component design. I also create open source tools like Tailwind CSS, for example. And most recently, I'm working on a project with a friend of mine, Steve Shoger, that you sort of alluded to, which is this refactoring UI book. And I mean, it's more than a book. It's hard to kind of figure out exactly what it is, but just kind of a yeah. this big collection of, of stuff that's hopefully going to help other developers uh, get better at uh, UI design so they can build their own stuff and rely less on other people and uh, have a little bit more fun doing it and get a little less frustrated when they're trying to put together a whole project on their own. That's awesome. To get off on my first tangent, I've actually noticed among people that have worked in like agencies or consultancies, like that like teaching and educating thread is always there. Have you noticed yeah. that as well? Uh, I never really thought about it, but now that you mention it, I think that's uh, definitely true. Like a lot of the companies that I used to um, kind of, well, still admire, but admired, you know, a lot more intentionally when I was like in the agency game, companies like ThoughtBot and stuff like that, who made a really big name for themselves by teaching and, and sharing what they know. And um, yeah, I think that's definitely true. You see it a lot that's more with, with consultancies, I think, than you do with product companies. Although there's some product companies out there that do a really good job teaching what they've learned, building their stuff too. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. I think I feel like it just attracts like uh, people who are who like learning and who like teaching. For sure, I've definitely found that pattern to be true among my coworkers. And so, a lot of different projects, a lot of them kind of focusing around education and learning. So, it seems like refactoring UI is your most recent project. Is that book published, or is that kind of a work in progress? Yeah, that's a work in progress. So uh, we kind of kicked it off as like a full time hammer it out, try and get it done thing about two weeks ago, and we're hoping to have it out uh, end of November, beginning of December. So that's kind of the big thing that we're pushing on right now. That's great. That's great. I was actually under the impression that it was, yeah, that it was like a content platform or like teaching platform. And, you know, you have a lot of YouTube videos associated with that. Yeah. And those are great. We've actually shared those a lot among my coworkers. So I definitely recommend anyone check them out. Yeah. Yeah. We, We started with just kind of this idea for sort of a brand that we thought would be a would resonate with developers, right? This refactoring UI, like what other design education resource out there is using words like refactoring? You know what I mean? That's right, that's right. So yeah, we just started off kind of sharing. I mean, the main thing has been like these tips on Twitter that Steve and I have put together that have performed really well in terms of people seem to really enjoy them and really 
been able to apply them and improve their stuff. And then Steve started doing some screencasts and stuff too, where people would like submit their own projects and he would do a screencast recording where he'd go through and talk about all the changes that he would make to sort of improve it, which people have, uh, have really enjoyed too. And, uh, you know, so we've been doing that for like a year and a half, something like that in all sorts of different mediums. Then we decided it'd be cool to try and consolidate all this into a more sort of premium thing, something that we could get paid for so that we can continue putting together this sort of thing. And we struggled for a long time thinking like, Oh, what should we name this like product that we're going to make? And eventually just decided, let's just call it the same thing that we've been calling everything else. After we found a, some precedent for that, we felt a yeah. little less weird about it, but it can be a little bit confusing to know, like, are you talking about like refactoring UI, the entity that puts out all this stuff or specifically like the book or whatever, but yeah, yeah, that, that's really interesting. I found that like many bloggers will name their book after their blog. When I used to follow more like cooking blogs, like a lot of sure. when, when they come out with their book, they'll name it after the blog just to kind of keep that brand continuous, yeah. add like a handy subtitle to make sure that you know sure. it's the book. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Is this your first time producing a book? Second book. I've never done like a physical book. I think this one Mm -hmm. we're going to try and do uh, physical versions of, but yeah, still going to be primarily like digital. Given your Uh, target audience, that sounds like it makes more sense. I think so. And I think there's like a lot of advantages to digital in terms of being able to push out updates. Say you want to add a new chapter or someone finds some grammar typos, stuff like that. You know, no matter how much editing you do, you're always going to there's going to be some things that slip through the cracks. It's hard to do version control on dead paper. Exactly. But at the same time, everyone always says like, Oh, is it going to be physical? Is it going to be physical? Cause people like to, to hold the real thing and read it, but there's going to be a, a bunch of other stuff that comes along with it. That um, just won't make sense in any, any format other than digital anyways. So it'll probably end up being like kind of a web portal that'll have all the content from the book plus a bunch of, you know, visual resources and stuff like that as well. But we're, we're hoping to do a physical one just if for no other reason, then I would really love to like hold a book in my hand that has yeah. my name on it. You know what I mean? That's a cool feeling. Well, I think it'll be a cool feeling. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've heard anytime I've talked to like a technologist that has either done a book on the side or decided to do it as like their main thing that I've always like heard the recurring message that it's kind of a painful process like just a, a lot more work than any of the like content publishing routes that we, we know about already. Have you found that to be true? Uh, you mean in terms of like putting together a physical book versus yeah, something or digital? Even just across both, like it seems like there's just a lot of, you know, if, if your goal is to produce what you're calling a book, there's like this yeah. goal of like having all the content completely produced and ready and, and finalized. And, and I've, he- I've heard that that just can be kind of a slog. Yeah, it can be for sure. I mean, it's a it's a big thing to to commit to, right? I think what's made it easier for for me and what I've been doing, taking to even more of an extreme on this book than I did with the the first book that I put together, is just trying to structure it in a way that every piece of it is like sort of as isolated as possible. So I don't know if you've read like Rework, like the Thirty Seven mm-hmm. Signals Rework book. Or, Definitely. They they always like structure their stuff in these like just these individual essays where they're kind of like categorized together because some of them are on related subjects. Like maybe all the ones related to marketing go here and the ones related to getting started go here or whatever. You can basically flip to any page in that book and just read a chapter sort of in isolation 
and you get the full message. Like it's not depending on some previous part of the story that you haven't read or something. Yeah, I love that format. And I really like that format. Yeah, right. It's it's really digestible. It's just a really great format, I think, and I don't see it often. In fact, you often see the opposite where people look at something and they think, okay, well, this has to be a book. So right. I have to do my best to like book it up. You know what I mean? Like write an introduction where you're explaining all of your flaws and approaches and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. When no one really wants that, like people want you to get to the point. If you can fit a lot of interesting points in there, that's great, but be clear and concise and don't just fill it up with stuff that's just meant to increase the page count or whatever. But anyways, we've been trying to take that same sort of 37 Signals Basecamp inspired approach to how we're structuring this book where every chapter is totally independent, which makes it a lot easier from the writing side of things because yeah. I can just kind of look at our table of contents and see, okay, well, which one, which chapters aren't done yet? Pick the one that I'm kind of feeling most inspired to write today and just write it on its own. I don't have to try and write the whole book from beginning to end and have it make sense as like one continuous story because it's just not designed to work that way. So it ends up feeling more like writing 40 or 50 pretty short um, blog posts than it does trying to fit, yeah, trying to create one big piece of content, if that makes sense. That's awesome. Yeah, I found that format to be just super duper consumable and it doesn't make sense a lot to have a to consume a book in like small pieces, but it's so much easier to do it that way. And if uh, if chapters just kind of stand on their own and make sense in our individual great lessons, uh, yeah. that that sounds really valuable to me. I would look forward yeah. to reading that. Yeah, exactly. So we're kind of betting on that being a format that people are going to you know enjoy and get value from, and uh, we'll see see how it goes. So awesome, yeah. awesome. You kind of alluded to it earlier. But how does refactoring UI's approach to like teaching UI lessons differ from like other kind of books or courses and things like that? I think the main advantage that Steve and I have kind of working together is that he's a designer, right? That's what he's done forever. He's a UI designer. He's sort of been an artistic person his whole life sort of like that right-brained, creative sort of person. Yeah. And I've always been like a developer who likes math and likes things that are measurable and concrete and really analytically minded. And we've been working together on just like side projects and stuff because we actually live in the same town. Great. Um, and have been friends for years. So we've been working on stuff together for a long time. And just over the years working together, I've st- I started picking up things that he was doing that was making stuff look better that he never would have really like thought to explain to me in the way that right. I was like noticing him doing it. You know, just little things like offset your box shadows vertically so they look like more natural. Just little things like that that most designers just don't really think to to point out a lot of the time because it just seems like second nature. They're thinking more compositionally where it's like, how do I keep moving these things around until like the, the light goes off in my head and it's right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So working together, I feel like we have this interesting opportunity that we've been trying to sort of take advantage of for the last couple of years of taking the stuff that he's really good at, figuring out like how to dissect that into a way that makes sense to me as like a developer in a way that I could apply to my own stuff and sort of like filtering his knowledge through me so I can like 
tell that to my tribe of people who are, you know, other developers and just trying to help bridge that gap. And uh, so far, I think, I think it's been going really well. Like we have, Steve's got like 35,000 people who follow him on Twitter for these tents and stuff now. And there's a lot of people who have signed up for updates on the book and stuff. And, and uh, everyone's saying like, these tips have been super helpful because it's just like so much more tactical and specific than we don't really talk about stuff like understanding color theory or the different yeah. types of typefaces, like a humanist font face versus a grotesque font or, you know, things that maybe are interesting to someone who's like pursuing design from like, for it's like artistic merit from like an art school one oh one kind of perspective. Right. Yeah, exactly. But for someone who's just like, I want to build this cool tool to solve my own problem. But when I hit the UI, it just looks ugly and I don't know why. And it's kind of killing my motivation and inspiration to even work on the code. You know, we're trying to help people get those super quick wins to just polish their stuff and make it look good without not not understanding why. Like we make sure to explain that too, but it's very much coming from this like goal driven perspective of like, okay, do this thing specifically and this is going to look better. And also this is why it looks better in case you're interested in that. And sort of taking that approach has, has just seemed to work, uh, seemed to work pretty well for us. I, again, I think just the advantage is being able to work together and sort of filter this knowledge from a developer's perspective uh, instead of just someone who thinks like a designer trying to teach something to a developer, but not necessarily being able to, you know, sync up, and how they think about things and really communicate it in a way that really resonates. So, yeah, I like that a lot as a, you know, I've worked in different contexts, but in, in one context, I was building small applications just on my own with no designer support. And I would use templates, bootstrap, et cetera. Like I was, I was intelligent enough about it to know that it was bad, <laughs> Yeah, but not really intelligent enough to know, you know, I know that like this much margin will make it look less bad, but overall, like yeah. compositionally always would be like a total mess. And I think that's a lot of developers. I think a lot of developers care about design and they see beautiful designs on the internet and they're inspired by it, you know, and they think they go to like Stripe or something like, wow, this looks so sick. I wish I could make something that looked like this, even though they don't want to be a designer. They just want to be able to produce that for their own sort of thing. So refactoring UI is kind of a bucket in your life and all along you've been doing educational things and trying to bring new things to developers to help them work on UI. Another part of that story is Tailwind CSS, right? Yeah. So you can tell the story of how that kind of came about and what your goals are for Tailwind CSS? Yeah, sure. So Tailwind CSS is a kind of utility-focused CSS framework that uh, myself and a few other people I collaborated on it released uh, late last year. It was sort of born out of basically the specifics of the stories. I've always used Bootstrap for for stuff as kind of a starting point, um, like like a lot of people. Makes sense. And when Bootstrap 4 was coming out, they were switching from less over to SAS. There's just changing the CSS preprocessor, the preprocessor they're using. And I've always like loved less and hated SAS for a bunch of nitpicky reasons that are probably not worth getting into. But Got it. Um, when they announced that they were going to be switching to SAS, I was like, ah, I don't really want to switch to SAS. Maybe I'll start putting together my own little less-based framework, trying to solve the same sort of problem, give myself sort of a, a starting point for new projects so I could kind of hit the ground running a little bit faster, right? So I just started kind of putting together something. 
I, basically what I did is I started building a project and decided, okay, I'm going to write all the CSS from scratch using less, but no framework, but sort of thinking about the CSS that I'm writing from like a framework mindset. I try to author it in sort of a library-ish way so that I can bring it around to other projects. So be careful not to name things so that they were specific to the content of the project that I was working on. Got it. You know, thinking of about it in like a, this is CSS that hopefully I can apply to different projects that have different types of content sort of way. Um, so I just started building this thing and creating the components that I needed, buttons and form inputs and cards and whatever as I went. Kind of just like kept that in a folder that I would copy around to, to new projects. And over the course of a, a few projects, like every time I would bring it to a project, I would, I would notice like, okay, these buttons that I used on the last project, I don't really want the buttons to look that, this way. Mm-hmm. So I need to sort of take those out of the framework so that I can edit them and kind of leave those as part of the project. And I just started noticing from project to project which pieces of the framework were like surviving. And it was always these really low-level Utilities like stuff for controlling the spacing between two components or adding a box shadow, stuff that was just like mostly just applying one CSS property. Got it. A friend of mine, Jonathan Rennink, kind of saw me doing this and wanted to try it on one of his projects because he had never worked this way before, where you're using a lot of these little utility classes. He tried it out and really loved it and said, you know, we should try and figure out a way that we can turn this into something that we can both like install from NPM and use. Cause at this point it was still just like a folder on Dropbox right. that you would copy and paste in your project. And it was a project template, but not like a framework of any kind, not like a real dependency or anything. Yeah. Right. So we were trying to figure out how can we, let's try and make it as portable as possible in not a copy and paste ish way. So we just kind of worked on it, worked on it. I was working on my project. He was working on his and we were just trying to figure out like, okay, well, what do you need different than mine? And that sort of drove a lot of decisions around like, okay, well, how does something need to be customizable versus not customizable? Um, and it started as this less framework, but going down this path of making sure that it could output what Jonathan needed and what I needed, we started running into kind of roadblocks in terms of what was just realistically possible with less in terms of mm-hmm. dynamically defining how many breakpoints you're going to have or how many colors. And um, things like this are actually almost easier in SAS because SAS is a bit more imperative in terms of being able to like loop over a map of things and generate everything, whereas less you have to do all this funky recursion stuff and things start to get really really out of hand and really hard to maintain really really fast because it's not a real programming language. Yeah. And I'm trying to do programming language things with it. So... After kind of hitting some of those roadblocks, another friend of mine turned me on to PostCSS. I didn't really know what you could do with it originally. The only examples I've really seen of PostCSS-based tools are like Auto Prefixer, right? Which goes to your CSS file, kind of scans it for properties, and duplicates those properties with the appropriate prefixes to, you know, improve browser support, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, that's a great tool. But I never really understood, like, how can I use PostCSS to create like a CSS framework? Is that really like in the scope of what's possible? And through sort of talking with this friend of mine, David Hemphill, who had worked with it a little bit before, I started to figure out like how to use PostCSS to sort of generate CSS. So CSS has this concept of at rules, right? Which are like media queries are an at rule yep. or char set is an at rule or import is an at rule. And because PostCSS, all it does is kind of parse a CSS file and turn it into like an abstract syntax tree that you can walk and manipulate, it doesn't force you to follow like the CSS 
specs super strictly. It will parse anything that looks like CSS, even if like it contains at rules that aren't real at rules in the CSS spec. Oh, interesting. So that was sort of like the secret sauce to figuring out, okay, well, we can like have the user put these custom at rules in their CSS templates, and we can walk those at rules with post-CSS. When we find one of those at rules, we can replace it with a bunch of generated CSS. So we eventually, through kind of experimenting with that, came up with this approach of having a CSS framework that is really like a tool for generating CSS from a JavaScript-based config file. And that config file is really like, it's more like a design system in JSON than mm-hmm. it is like a config file per se. Like it lists all your colors, your typefaces that you want to use, your spacing scales, uh, you know, stuff like all your sort of constrained choices for this UI that you're building. The kind of like variables or settings file that you would have in, in many projects, but but not inside of like a framework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we were able to write this tool that basically takes that configuration as a dependency, looks in your CSS file for these sort of markers where you want to inject kind of Tailwind's code, and Tailwind will replace a rule like Tailwind Utilities with all these utility classes generated based on the information in this config file. And it was so much easier than doing it with less because you could do it all with JavaScript. Like it's a real programming language now. So all of the strategies that you're used to using to write maintainable code are all available to you instead nice. of trying to, you know, really abuse the <laughs> and stretch the limits of like what a preprocessor like less was designed to be able to do. Yeah, so it sounds like you narrowly avoided using SAS, which is what you were trying to get away from in the first place. I even I even tried to use SAS at, at one point, but it just it, it just didn't really feel right. Like there's there's one thing that I, I always did with Less. This was the thing that I liked about Less. Um, and I, have you worked with like Less and SAS on a bunch of projects before? Or coincidentally, just all of my projects over the last five years have been in SAS, so I've not been exposed okay. to the differences really. So you know how in SAS you have mix-ins, right. where you do like at mix-in, give it a name, specify some properties, and then somewhere else you can say add include, and then the mix-in, and it'll kind of dump yep. that in. So something that you could do in, in less that was kind of cool was the syntax for defining a mix-in actually looked exactly like the syntax for defining a class. So say in, in SAS you wanted to have a mix-in for like a, I'm trying to think of like a good example, like a, a box shadow mix-in or something, right? So maybe you would do like at mix-in large shadow, and that would let you just mix in this large box shadow in the places. So unless instead of doing at mix-in large shadow, you would just say dot large shadow, just like a class, and then define it. Oh, nice. And the thing that's interesting about that is that would actually produce that class in the output too, as long as you didn't put any parentheses at the end of the class name because it kind of it sees parentheses as like okay it's a parametric mix-in so that means it's a mix-in we're not going to render it into the style sheet but if it has no parentheses then it's a class but classes can be used as mix-ins so then anywhere you want to mix that in you would just say dot large shadow inside of another class and it would just show up there so it's a lot less verbose yeah that sounds like really clean syntax yeah, and, and the thing that's neat about it is less is not really picky. Well, not that it's not picky. Um, it's semantics around, like, order are very different than SAS. SAS is, like, to use a mix-in, it has to be defined already. So the mix-ins have to be defined before they're used, whereas in less, the mix-ins can be defined after. 
and be used in classes that are defined earlier. So that meant that what I was doing in less a lot of time is I had these utility classes like dot BG primary or something, right, for setting the background color or something to whatever my primary brand color was. And then for a, a primary button, I would mix in that BG primary class. But that button could be defined before the utility class so that the utility class had a higher, not higher specificity, it's the same specificity, but it would override it because it's defined later in the style sheet. Yep. I wanted to be able to make it possible to support that workflow with Tailwind, which SAS was just going to make really hard to do. So uh, anyways, as a result of kind of wanting to support all that stuff, Tailwind also has this feature where you can say at apply and then specify a list of other class names and it'll copy those class name or those class definitions into this specific class. So okay. Tailwind generates all these utilities for you. And then for your own custom components and stuff like that, so say you're creating a card for your project and you want to define like what a default card looks like, maybe it has this specific shadow, this border radius, this background color, you can just say add apply and then list all the utility classes that you would have used to build, build that card purely in HTML with just like seven classes. And then you can just apply that dot card class anytime that you want. But instead of that card class just being loaded with properties with arbitrary values, you're sort of constraining yourself to your mm -hmm. existing sort of toolkit of predefined utilities. So it, it makes things a little bit more consistent and I think also frees your mind to work a little bit faster because you're not playing around with like, oh, should this be 15 pixels or 16 pixels? It's like, well, the spacing scale has 4, 8, 12, 16, and 24, so I just got to pick the one that looks closest to what I want. Right. It gives you like a, it, it makes following a design system that you set out much easier. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the history of the project. It's always kind of hard to um, figure out the best way to explain some of these things because uh, once you're so deep in something, it's easy to sort of uh, forget what people don't know already. <laughs> right, right. So one, one thing that's interesting is, is it because you are applying this post-processing using post-CSS, are people using this in like vanilla CSS, less and SAS, or is it, is it specifically enabled for one of those? So you can use any preprocessor with it, which is kind of cool. So it works the same way that an auto prefixer would work, right? So it can just work on anything. We have run into issues where some people don't have the right mental model in terms of like understanding when the stuff gets generated. Mm -hmm. Because your last or your SAS or whatever has to get compiled into CSS, and then that CSS gets processed with post CSS. Right. So some people want to be able to like access a Tailwind color value in their SAS, and they can't because that stuff doesn't exist until the SAS is no longer SAS anymore. Got it. So you kind of need to fully embrace the framework or find out find ways to use either. I think yeah. I think like what ends up happening is that people who are using a preprocessor with it are mostly just using preprocessor features that are syntactical and not really related to like the specific values they're trying to create. So they might be using like nesting is the most common one. That's yeah. what everyone wants a CSS preprocessor for that and variables generally, right? Uh, yeah, we, nesting and variables is usually the first thing yeah. that like it's it's the primary function mm -hmm. for preprocessing in most of my projects. Yeah. And then if you if you're using Tailwind and sort of embracing the workflow that the framework tries to encourage, um, you don't really need variables. Um, 
So you end up just using it for nesting. And yep. uh, there's... Which is very useful on its own. Totally. <laughs> yeah, it's especially useful even just like just for nesting media queries. If that was the only thing that I could do, it would right. still be worth it to me, right? That would still be a very yeah. worthwhile yeah. require in your package JSON. But you can get nesting support with just PostCSS too. I'm using, Interesting. There used to be a tool called CSS Next, which is still around but deprecated now in favor of PostCSS Preset Env, which is kind of taking the same approach that um, kind of like Babel like, uses. like Babel presets. Yeah, yeah. so... It's kind of designed to uh, give you future CSS features now, right? Which cool. nesting, there's like a future CSS spec for nesting. So it's a post-CSS plugin designed to let you use that syntax now. And once all the browsers support it, that processing step can get removed and things will just kind of work, right? So yeah, on my own projects, I'm typically just using you know, call it plain CSS, but it certainly isn't because mm-hmm. the browser doesn't understand it because it has nesting and all that stuff. Uh, but I'm just, I'm just using... Future a, plain CSS. Yeah, I'm using a combination of post-CSS plugins and not really using a pre-processor at all anymore. Um, I mean, awesome. post-CSS is still a pre-processor. It's not a post-processor, at least not in the right. way that it's a, people like me abuse it for it. <laughs> to bend it to our will in terms of like what it was designed for, like auto prefixer is why post CSS exists. Like, yeah, that is a post processor. It's taking valid CSS and processing it. But the things that people do with post CSS now, it, it's hard to, uh, to call it a true post processor. It's really just another preprocessor. But Very cool. Very cool. So it's been out since the end of last year, you mentioned? Uh, yeah, I think we released it on Halloween last year. Very cool. So closing in on a year, a year next month it'll be. So that's kind of cool. Awesome. What, what would you put the status of the project in? Would you call it already successful? Or do you feel like there's a lot still to do? What are your goals for it? There's a lot still to do, but I have been pretty impressed with how much it's taken off. Um, like, I don't know, I'm trying to think here, like, what do we got in terms of, so we got like 6,400 stars on GitHub. Not that that necessarily means a lot, but you know, it's something. It means something. It's gotten over 300,000 downloads on NPM, which is total. So, you know, probably a hundred thousand mm-hmm. for me, but. <laughs> well, you know. But yeah, uh, you know, we have 71 contributors on the project, which is, which is really good. An awesome sign of health. Yeah, so it's it's really active. I'm still working on it, pushing new code and fixing bugs and implementing new features every month for sure. And I use it on all my my projects. And we've got a pretty active Slack channel with like 800 people in it. And I'm hearing more and more every day about people using it on more and more real projects. Right? Like it still doesn't have like a 1.0 version, so. A lot of the stuff is people just playing around with it, but I know like Procter and Gamble used it on a site recently, which was pretty awesome. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I know a lot of companies are just in general moving to a similar CSS authoring approach. Like, right. there's a lot of other frameworks that exist out there that are similar in terms of what they provide. Like Tachyons is another really popular um, like functional CSS framework. And like Heroku uses Tachyons, for example. They recently switched to that from their Bootstrap-based setup. GitHub uses their own, it's called Primer, is their like internal framework, mm-hmm. which was very bootstrappy at one point. But if you look at it now, there's so much of it is utility-based. And I interviewed um, Diana Mounter, who's she's like the design systems lead at GitHub. 
And I was yeah. talking to her about like what they've been doing at Primer. And it sounds like they're just moving more and more and more towards these utilities. She described it as like the developers feel like they have like superpowers now because they can just add a class to something and it does exactly what they want and they don't have to worry about all this global CSS breaking stuff and stuff like that. So I've consulted in on a couple of larger engineering organizations and the difference between CSS happiness and CSS unhappiness on the developer side seems mm-hmm. to be these design systems. Cause when you're, when you know you receive mocks from, from whatever design team, usually they will have like places where it doesn't, it's not very, you know, you look at a, a three-year-old design guidelines doc and new designs will usually not follow those guidelines. And so you're like, well, I could use the, now I have to implement new CSS to kind of override these guidelines. And, and you know, it doesn't feel, it stops feeling very cohesive. And so if everything is in a system and if there are changes to like this whole overall design kind of guidelines, it has to be moved through the system to be successful, then that, that just feels really good as a developer. Yeah, for sure. Like even in situations where you get designs that don't necessarily match like the design system, like maybe someone used a 13 pixel font and your system says you only have 12, 14, 16, and 20 or whatever. I've definitely found that like I've been happier when I've worked at places where I can decide to, okay, well, that's 13, but that's not part of the system. So the solution to that isn't add 13 in the CSS somewhere it's use 12 or 14 right. <laughs> on my own discretion. You know what I mean? Yep, and that's yep. and kind of working in that sort of like, don't treat the the pixel perfect Photoshop mockups as like the, the source of truth. Kind of use that, match it as close as you can without deviating from the system. Right. I've, I found that's always been a more, more productive and also just results in a lot more maintainable CSS code base because it's writing maintainable CSS is a skill that I've, I've found that to be very difficult. I found that regular front end back end code maintainability on that. There's like a lot of conversation about that, but I found that whenever I get, you know, as a consultant bouncing around between different projects, whenever I get on a project that has an older code base, the biggest mess is the CSS. Yeah. No one respects the CSS, mm-hmm. right? That's the the problem, I think. And it's sort of, I think that the problem is we've sort of had it ingrained into our heads that like the way to style something is to write CSS, mm-hmm. which when I, when you say that, it's like, yeah, of course that's how you style something. But I think like the way that you should style something should be to apply existing CSS. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got um, it. Because then your CSS isn't, growing linearly with the size of your code base right like right and your goal as a as a developer and as as a product is to have cohesion and make things you know make everything kind of hang together well and and easy to consume and understand yeah if you're writing regular traditional not regular css necessarily sas whatever but you're working on a project that you know has global style sheets and that's how things are styled well it's hard to maintain stuff that has like global reach on your code base. We're changing something can have unexpected side effects on a page that you didn't even know existed. Whereas if you can work in a more markup driven approach where you style things by adding classes that already exist. Yep. Anytime you add a class to an element, that's like a localized change, right? Like adding a class to this div isn't going to change how this div over here looks, but changing the border radius on some class in your style sheet could affect anything in the system. You don't know where all that stuff is being used and it's hard to get 
good insights on that, really, other than just doing these big grabs on your code base anytime that you want to change what a glass does. That's right. That's right. I guess it's the same thing with, you know, OO in any sort of other system, right? Like you don't, you don't modify your base classes to implement functionality in one place, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's a great analogy. That's cool. That's cool. Well, I definitely want to be respectful of time here and and start to wrap up. I always ask, is there anything that you'd like to promote via the podcast other than what we've obviously mentioned already? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, um, if, if you're interested in learning more about the Refactoring UI project, you can just head to refactoringui.com. It's sort of a, a homepage we've created that links out to all of the other resources that we've we've put out there. Tailwind CSS is just at tailwindcss.com. Like you mentioned, I host the Full Stack Radio podcast, which is mostly an interview kind of focused podcast where I've just talked to people that are doing things I think are interesting. Sounds like a lot like what you do on this podcast and been doing that for about four years now. So four years. That's awesome. Yeah. So you can check that out. Aside from that, I've got like my personal website is adamwather.me. If you're into uh, tester and development with Laravel, I've got a TDD course that's on testerandlaravel.com. I've got a course on view component design at advancedview.com. And then the first book that I wrote was a book on kind of teaching some functional programming principles to PHP developers to refactor a bunch of procedural loops and stuff like that. That book was called uh, Refactoring to Collections, which uh, you can find that just on my personal homepage. There's a book item in the nav bar. But yeah, that's kind of like everything that I do. That's, that's your entire <laughs> portfolio. That's kind of my entire portfolio nice. stuff. So if any of that stuff sounds interesting, you can uh, go and check that stuff out. Yeah, we'll definitely include some links for all that stuff. That, that I'm definitely I'm going to try Tailwind CSS on my next side project. Awesome. You've definitely given me a great pitch on it. Cool, man. Cool, cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Adam. And thank you so much, everyone, for listening. As always, if you'd like to continue to follow up with us, we're at, on Twitter at CodingZeal. And see you next time. All right. Thanks, everyone.